Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. So uh, my family and I were traveling this past week. Uh, we left right after church last Sunday, went over to Chicago, then down to Champaign, and then Kansas City, and then came, came back yesterday. And uh, yesterday morning, <clears throat> so yesterday morning, uh, I was looking at the weather here, and I thought, hmm, I better buy a coat. <laughs> so literally, <clears throat> on the drive back, uh, we stopped in uh, Walmart in Sioux City, Iowa, and, uh, and I got a coat. So, uh, <laughs> so one of the things that people have been teasing me about is I, I like to greet um, for the hour before the service. Uh, out front, um, up until about 10 minutes till, then I got to kind of get my mic on and everything. So if you've never seen me greet out there, uh, it's probably because you're one of those people who comes in right on time or maybe a few minutes afterwards, but I try to greet out there. And people have been wondering, um, is he going to do this when it's like 20 below? So I wore my coat out there and was, was greeting today, so... All right, so it was July 20th. 1969, the Apollo 11's Eagle lunar module um, had landed on the moon. Um, Some of you remember this. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins uh, were on a nine-day trip of a lifetime. Uh, They were sent by NASA with a mission to walk on the moon. And so Armstrong and Aldrin would walk on the moon for three hours while Collins would stay in orbit uh, taking pictures and doing experiments. Um, This mission was in the making for well over a decade and involved um, over 400,000 people. Um, Before Armstrong and Aldrin stepped on the moon, um, they had an hour to recover from their long flight. And Buzz Aldrin... Um, who was an elder in his Presbyterian church, Um, he prepared for this event in an interesting way. Um, Aldrin got on the comm system, and he spoke to the ground crew back on Earth. Um, He said, I'd like to request a few moments of silence. I'd like to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever he may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours, and to give thanks in his own individual way. And then with Armstrong um, looking on quietly, Aldrin took out a three three by five inch note card um, on which he had written John 15, five. And then he paused to read it silently. It says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit for you can do nothing without me. Then Aldrin reached for some wine and some bread that he'd brought with him, uh, the first foods ever poured or eaten on the moon, and here's what he said. Um, He he wrote this in a book later. He said, I I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, The wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. When they got back to the earth, earth, uh, Aldrin also read um, out Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, which he had written on the same note card. It says, 
When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Aldrin later said that he had come to wonder if he'd done the right thing by celebrating a Christian ritual in space. But at the time, I could think of no better way to acknowledge the Apollo 11 experience than by giving thanks to God. Which leads us to the tough question uh, we're answering today in the second message of this tough question series, which is this. Are science and faith compatible? Among most unbelieving intellectuals, science is often held up as the answer to everything. And faith, or religion in general, is often looked at with disdain. The Karman argument is that uh, science is a reliable method to determine what's true in the world by making claims based on testable quantifiable facts. Okay, science is objective and can be trusted to tell us what's really true. In fact, a healthy dose of skepticism in science is seen as a virtue, right? It's what fuels scientific discovery, which then leads to more rigorous explanations. On the other hand, faith makes unreliable claims, uh, claims based on belief, belief in the unseen. It makes untestable speculations. Faith is uh, subjective. It can't be trusted to tell us what's really true. In faith, just believing blindly is seen as a virtue. And there is no room for skepticism because that's seen, skepticism is seen as not having faith. In other words, um, science is a sensible step into the light of reason while faith is a blind leap into the dark of superstition and dogma. That's the generally held belief, okay? So I wanna start with an overview of science, uh, and then an overview of faith, and then talk about the relationship between the two, okay? Obviously, I am not a scientist, um, but I have been a bit of a math and science nerd throughout my life. Um, I have had physics, chemistry, stats, calculus. I took computer programming, C, C++, Java. Um, oh, and since I attended undergrad at a uh, school in Tampa, Florida, I took marine navigation, which means I can use a sextant and a nautical almanac to triangulate my position. Um, none of these classes, these are like classes nerds take, right? Um, none of these classes were required for my schooling, right? I studied music, then I studied theology. None of these were required. Um, I just took them for fun. So you know I'm a nerd, right? Who takes these things for fun, okay? Um, I also have pi memorized to 50 digits. So feel free to test me sometime. Only a nerd does something like that, okay? And I also know all of the uh, Star Trek, original and um, next generation, so watched all of them multiple times. So truly math science nerd, okay. My understanding of science is that it is essentially about two things, mathematics and observation. 
okay? Mathematics is a powerful language for capturing and describing how the world works. When we speak of, say, the universal law of gravitation, um, we're not talking about a legal law, but we're talking about a physical law that's described uh, by the equation that they're going to put up on the screen. Okay? See? Nerd. Only nerd shows shows uh, equations in his sermon, right? Okay? So F is the gravitational force acting between two objects. M1 and M2 are the masses of those objects. R is the distance between the centers of the masses, and G is the gravitational constant, okay? Classic Newtonian mechanics. Newton published this in his book, his Principia, in 1687, okay? So that's mathematics. The other part of science is observation. Okay, the majority of the effort spent in the sciences uh, is about trying to observe particular phenomena either for the first time or more importantly in a repeatable fashion. Right? That's a big deal in science. The ability to repeat observations is the key to having confidence uh, in a scientific result or a scientific theory. Um, for scientists, an observation means experiments, lots of experiments, okay? Experiments can take place um, in a lab with Bunsen burners. Uh, it can take place in the middle of a tornado. Um, it can take place at the bottom of the ocean or, uh, or on the moon, right? Um, experiments are the key to the scientific method. Okay? There are a number of parts to it. Um, but the essence is that scientists formulate a hypothesis, um, which is really a prediction. They then test that prediction against observations by performing more experiments. Okay? They try to do this without letting human opinions, uh, beliefs, or biases, or other assumptions get in the way. And mathematics helps with this. Um, typically, scientists use the unemotional logic of mathematics to formulate their predictions and to analyze their observations, all right? So that um, is like, I don't know, that's like the essence of science, mathematics and observations distilled down to um, five minutes by a pastor for you, okay? Um, so let's talk about faith, faith. Um, the biblical definition of faith is described in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's a classic uh, verse about faith. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is trust in God. Um, it is reliance on God who is himself trustworthy. Um, faith in the, present, in the present tense is the assurance of things hoped for, things in the future that have not yet come to pass. Um, faith is based upon past promises that give us a present confidence and a future hope. Um, when I get on board an airplane, um, I'm not a nervous wreck because I've flown many times since I was a boy um, to Florida, California, New York, um, I've flown internationally to Ecuador to do some uh, missionary training there, and I've flown over the Atlantic to Germany. Um, so I have years of flying experience that informs me that a plane 
is a safe way to travel. I'm statistically more safe than driving in a car, at least in most cities, maybe not Fergus, but <laughs> it's pretty safe to drive in a car in Fergus. <laughs> it was a stark reality when, I, when we were in Chicago this past week and I'm driving downtown and I'm like, something has changed in me. <laughs> I have anxiety now, like all these cars around me. I'm like, what is happening to me? <laughs> Oh, anyway, um, so I have confidence when I fly uh, in the pilots and in the reliability of an airplane, okay? I have a present, present confidence and a future hope that I will arrive safely. Granted, I'm not a pilot, I'm not an aerospace engineer, um, but I do have enough understanding to feel secure uh, when I'm flying. So likewise, our Christian faith is not blind faith. Um, it always has its eyes wide open, and it is always focused on the person of Jesus. Um, our faith is real because its object is real, Jesus Christ. Okay? We look back to the past promises of God in the Bible, and we see the historical resurrection of Jesus, um, which was verified by a multitude of eyewitnesses, right? Testimonies everywhere. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus Christ truly died on a cross and was resurrected. Tons of extra-biblical documentary evidence, right? All of the people, too, who were willing to be martyred for their faith in the belief of the resurrection, right? They believed in this resurrection so much so that they were killed for it, right? In the New Testament, uh, the writers don't talk about blind faith, but they talk about faith based on reliable information. They're talking about their objective sense experiences. I'll give you some examples. So Peter uh, is addressing challenges to the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection when he talks about uh, what he and the other apostles saw with their own eyes. It's in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. It says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So that's Peter. Luke, right? Luke, the physician, the doctor, he, he writes about um, the care with which he put together an accurate collection of historical facts. Um, this well-educated man, Right? Even writes about how carefully investigated the whole account in order to complete his research. It says in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. 
In Acts, Luke also writes that the resurrected Jesus appeared to many people to provide proof of the resurrection. Acts 1.3, it says, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. The apostle John in uh, 1 John 1 emphasizes the fact that his written testimony is the opposite of blind faith. His faith is based on real life experience. 1 John 1 verses 1 through 3 says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul too in 1 Corinthians uh, reiterates the fact that Jesus appeared in his resurrected body as evidence of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses five through seven. It says he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. So clearly faith in Jesus uh, is not blind, but based on the evidence of multiple eyewitnesses. Um, but maybe you're saying to yourself, um, well, the apostles may have seen something with their own eyes, but I didn't see anything with mine. And I would respond with this question. Um, do you have the same objections to a historian who wrote about the Civil War? Um, or Alexander the Great, or Socrates. Um, all of these are a matter of history. And so are the truth claims of the Christian faith. Um, rejecting the historical truths of the Bible then isn't so much about rejecting the Bible, it's about rejecting history. Um, here are a few quotes from prominent thinkers of the past um, that reflect what they believed regarding the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So first one is Brooke Foss Westcott, who was a scholar in the 19th century, um, said, there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Dr. Paul L. Meyer, um, who was a professor of ancient history said, no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy or archaeology that would disprove that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who was a uh, famous Harvard professor of law, um, he said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Frank Morrison, 
uh, who was a journalist, decided to take three years off from work um, and for some reason tried to disprove the resurrection of Christ. Um, after those three years of study, he found that the sheer weight of the evidence led him to conclude that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And as a result, he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? Um, so if you're interested in exploring uh, more of the evidence um, of the resurrection, I would strongly recommend um, when we start advertising for our spring semester that you sign up for the Alpha course. Um, that is covered in one of the talks in Alpha, um, the historical evidence of the resurrection of Christ. For us as followers of Jesus, the best evidence um, of course, is a lifetime of experiencing his transforming power, his presence, and his miraculous moving in our lives. Like, I don't have enough faith now to not be a Christian. Um, so Jesus validates our present confidence in him. Um, he allows us to look forward to a future with him, having hope on, based on what God has already done. Um, we have faith in Jesus, and Christ alone is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So biblical faith involves um, an intellectual knowledge of the facts, and then an agreement of those facts being true, and then trusting in the person to whom those facts point towards. Um, God never demands that we not use reason and logic and just blindly and thoughtlessly have faith. Okay? He actually invites us to examine the historical evidence for ourselves. Um, he invites us to think. He invites us to reason, to ask our questions. Um, I don't think God wants us just to have blind faith. Blind faith is just having faith in our faith. Um, theoretically, we can have blind faith in anything that our hearts desire. Um, this is where the skeptical scientists actually have a valid point. Blind faith does make unreliable claims based on untestable speculations. Therefore, blind faith is subjective and can't be trusted to tell us what is truly true, right? In other words, just believing, just believing without thinking um, and without content is not true faith. Um, one of the classes I had to take in seminary uh, was on apologetics. And like one of the most important things I got out of that class is that Christianity absolutely absolutely can withstand rigorous intellectual criticism, reasoning, and debate, right? Read anything uh, by William Lane Craig. Love that guy. Like, it's not easy reading. Um, that guy um, can debate. Like, look him up on YouTube. He's got some, he would make these tours around the country and go to, like, different colleges and, like, debate these Atheists and, just, and always very graciously, very lovingly, but man, that guy was just amazing. Uh, J.P. Moreland is another author I would recommend. 
Um, that guy has degrees in chemistry, philosophy, and theology. Um, he's a professor at Biola University's uh, Talbot School of Theology. Just amazing um, to see the intersection of really um, strong, critical intellect and reasoning with faith, the intersection of those two. So I would argue that even though there are those that see science and faith as being an either-or proposition, that it's actually a both-and. When we put faith and science together uh, in dialogue with one another, um, there is great freedom. Um, That freedom is expressed in two profound words, awe and wonder. Okay? I talked about Buzz Aldrin um, having, taking communion on the moon. It's kind of cool. Um, John Glenn was the first astronaut to orbit the earth. Interestingly, he too was a Presbyterian elder in his church. Um, it's, it's pretty obvious that Glenn's orbit of the earth filled him with awe and wonder. So here's a quote from John Glenn. He says, looking at the earth from this vantage point, Looking at this kind of creation and to not believe in God, to me, is impossible. To see the earth laid out like that only strengthens my beliefs. So yet again, the intersection of science and faith, um, and one serving to strengthen the other. Here's another example. Dr. John Polkinghorne uh, was a renowned theoretical physicist like so renowned, he was a member of the, uh, the Royal Society. And if you don't know the Royal Society, um, that, is, that is the society that has included such names as Isaac Newton and Stephen Hawking. Um, when Polkinghorne hit a midlife crisis, um, he didn't go out and buy a sports car. Um, he decided to go back to school and study theology. Kind of interesting. So he became the first professor at Cambridge uh, to hold a chair in the disciplines of both physics and theology. Uh, and he also became an Anglican priest in the Church of England. So here, here's a quote from Polkinghorne. He said, if working in science teaches you anything, it is that the physical world is surprising. And I was a quantum physicist. And the quantum world is totally different from the world of every day. It's cloudy, it's fitful, you don't know where things are. If you know what they're doing, oh, you don't know where things are if you know what they're doing. If you know what they're doing, you don't know where they are. So that's a complex world and quite different from what we expected. But it's an exciting world because it turns out we can understand it. And when we do understand it, we have a deep intellectual satisfaction. So yet another example of a scientist um, whose faith was strengthened by their pursuit of science. The more they study science, the more they are um, inspired and filled with awe and wonder about God's creation. So think about this. An exoplanet, E-X-O planet, right? Exoplanet is an extrasolar planet, uh, meaning a planet outside of our solar system. 
Okay, the first confirmed discovery of an exoplanet uh, was in 1992. As of December 23rd, 2021, um, there have been 4,884 confirmed exoplanets identified. Um, I literally looked up on that day on the NASA website uh, to get that number. Um, but using recent data from uh, NASA's Kepler telescope, um, it's estimated that in our galaxy alone, there could be as many as six billion Earth-like planets. Planets that are approximately Earth-sized, uh, and they're in what's called the Goldilocks zone, right? Not too hot, not too cold, just the right distance from a star to potentially support life, okay? And that's just in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies are out there? Used to be, based on data from the Hubble telescope, um, it was thought that there were about 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Now, based on recent data from the University of Nottingham in the UK, um, they estimate that there are about 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. So do the math. 6 billion Earth-like planets uh, in our galaxy alone times 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That is a lot of potential Earth-like planets. Okay? All of those discoveries have happened since 1992. So tell me, has the universe just changed for you a little bit in the last few minutes? Um, has the smallest sense of awe and wonder crept into your mind? So whatever their differences, um, science and faith both share a connection to the transcendent. Um, each can evoke a sense of awe and wonder and can pull back the curtain to show us um, that the world we lived in was not what we thought it was. Some people talk about uh, there being a conflict between science and faith, um, as if a scientist couldn't possibly have faith or a person of faith has to reject science. The National Academy of Science um, actually has a policy to address this issue. Um, it essentially says that faith and science address separate spheres and no controversy or contradiction between them needs to exist. Historically, though, um, you know, as well as I do, uh, that there has been some conflict between faith and science. Um, toward the end, towards the end of the Renaissance, um, nearly um, at the end of the Protestant Reformation, Galileo was tried for heresy because he continued to insist that the earth wasn't the fixed center of the universe, um, which was contradicting what the church was teaching. They were teaching that, that the earth was the center of the universe. Um, before his first trial in 1616, he wrote the following. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. 
So Galileo saw nothing unfaithful in his scientific ideas. 80 years later, um, Isaac Newton, I I referenced him earlier, published his Principia, um, in which he laid out, among other things, that law of universal gravitation, um, confirming again that the Earth is not the center of the universe, right? For the next 350 years, um, science appeared to be able to explain just about anything that was important, right? Lightning in the sky was captured, right? Now we have electricity in our homes, right? Railroads, cars, telegraphs, telephones, computers, internet, virtual reality, right? Medicine, antibiotics, immunizations, prosthetic limbs, right? It has been the goal of physicists um, for a long time to come up with one equation uh, that describes everything. Um, The thinking is that the universe is predictable, like clockwork. Um, And they, they just haven't found that one equation yet. But the question is, do we truly live inside of a clockwork universe where all we need to do to complete our understanding uh, of all the natural laws and from that point forward um, be able to just, like once we figure that out, we can then like predict everything and control everything, right? That's, that was the thinking for a long time. Like if we just find this one equation, we got it all figured out, Right? But then in the late 1920s, uh, Werner Heisenberg um, proposed his famous uncertainty principle, right? Then uh, Erwin Schrodinger, he's the cat guy, Schrodinger's cat, you know. Anyway, another inside nerd joke. Uh, laid out, he laid out the fundamental mathematics of quantum physics in the middle of the 20th century. And then more recently, there's a branch of physics called chaos theory. Um, It was invented to deal with a set of um, very difficult and potentially insoluble set of problems uh, in physics. So all all three of these things, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, uh, and chaos theory, have one thing in common. They tell us that there are limits to predicting the physical behavior, uh, uh, behavior of physical systems, right? They point to the fact that uncertainty is built into the very structure of the universe. There are some things we simply cannot know ahead of time. It's inherent in creation, built in. So circling back to today's scripture, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Let me read it again. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, It's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell, down, fell face down on the ground. Then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. As they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So this is what's called the transfiguration. Um, it is an encounter with the divine. Um, a transfiguration is a change in form or appearance, um, or an exalting, a glorifying, or a spiritual change. Um, it is also important to remember this transfiguration wasn't necessarily of Jesus himself. He was already the son of God, right? Fully human, fully divine. The transfiguration was about how the disciples felt when the fabric of the world that they knew suddenly buckled, shifted, and realigned as this man, this teacher that they had been following was revealed to be who he already was, fully divine. Okay? So it's an, it's an interesting thing. Let's look over at Exodus 34, 29 to 35, uh, to see another encounter with the divine. So when Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak with the Lord. So in a similar way, the Israelites in the desert experienced Moses' encounter with the divine. Like, um, they were frightened enough by what they saw that Moses had to cover his face. Sometimes a glimpse of the divine can overwhelm us. Um, we turn our heads, we avert our eyes, right? We're not prepared for that. So one more, in 2 Corinthians, Paul encourages us uh, to look, to have courage and to be transformed as we stare into the unveiled light of the glory of the Lord. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 says, Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, 
makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. This is the nature of the connection between science and faith. Both urge us on to open our eyes and boldly look into the face of that which we've never seen before. John Calvin, you know that name, John Calvin. So, the great Protestant reformer, he wrote the following, and I think it's funny. Um, He said, if the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectics, mathematics, and other disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. For if we neglect God's freely offered gift in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloths. <laughs> so I think it's a funny quote, but I think Calvin got it. Okay? Calvin understood that all truth is God's truth. Okay? And the Lord absolutely wants to reveal himself through both scripture and through his creation through faith in Jesus, and through the sciences. Personally, uh, whenever I've read anything about like black holes or relativity or singularities or multiple dimensions or quantum mechanics, right? That's like how those little subatomic particles behave. Um, It's like, It only makes me marvel at the infinite creativity of God. The infinite creativity of God as we stare into the unveiled light of the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, truly you are an awesome God. The the complexities and the intricacies and the paradoxes of creation are astounding. And we know, God, that that's, that's only the beginning. Um, you will continue to amaze us and surprise us for all eternity. Um, Lord, we pray today that you would uh, draw people unto yourself here at Life Church. God, whether that is a, an intellectual atheist or somebody who's homeless or somebody who just came out of being incarcerated or uh, a single mom trying to make ends meet, whatever. God, let Life Church be a place where people truly experience love, they experience grace, um, where they are accepted right where they're at and they can grow and become all you created them to be. Um, That is my prayer this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.